Welcome to episode two of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where my listeners tell me which of the unwatched movies in my collection I should be watching next. This time around, we settled on The Crow, originally released on May 13th, 1994, directed by Alex Proyas. The executive summary of the plot is that Eric Draven and his wife were attacked. They were both killed. His wife was also raped by a group of people because they were fighting for tenant rights in a slum, and the slumlords and crime lords didn't care for that. A crow decides to bring Eric back to life a year later so that he can get vengeance on those who attacked and killed his wife. And once that's done, which takes a bit of doing, he kind of fades off into the sunset. Along the way, he makes new ties with a girl who lived in the same apartment building, and with a police officer, who is a little bit skeptical at first, but, you know, it's an unavoidable conclusion, the dead guy standing in front of him, often in his apartment. Now, when Eric Draven returns from the dead, he is able to heal from virtually any injury, so he's practically invincible until one of the people he's facing realizes that he's only invincible as long as the crow is there to keep him alive. It's the crow that brought him back from the land of the dead, and it is associated with him and nearby the entire time. When they injure the crow, then Eric Draven's invulnerability goes away as well. But he is ultimately able to win the day anyway. So I have this because in the previous podcast I was doing on the 14th of the month, the Silver Screen Superheroes, I was trying to gather every movie I could that was based on a comic book. I'm actually quite glad that it wasn't covered last time, because this is not a superhero film. He's just straight-up vengeance. There's no altruism, nothing like that. It's he was wronged, so he is going to take it out on the people who wronged him. In fact, I didn't just pick up The Crow, I picked up a four-pack of all four Crow films, the two that came out in theaters, and then the two direct-to-DVD releases as well. So that's The Crow, Crow City of Angels, Crow Salvation, and The Crow Wicked Prayer. So why haven't I seen it so far? I just never got around to it. The concept didn't sound that appealing. It's a visually striking film, but it did seem pretty dark. And I've got to be in the mood to watch something dark. I've got a lot of dark films in my collection. When I'm in the mood for something dark, I'm more likely to go to 30s and 40s film noir than to this. Although I'm actually glad that the voters pushed me into seeing it, because this is really Alex Proya's big debut. He's gone on to do other things, Dark City, Knowing, iRobot, Gods of Egypt. Prior to this, he did a lot of TV commercials and music videos. And the music video background does show through in this to some degree. But yeah, it's been on my to-watch list for a while. I just never got around to it. Now, there's three credited writers on this project. The first is James O'Barr. All of his IMDb credits are related to The Crow or Frame 137. These are the comics he's created that were adapted to film. So he hasn't worked on the screenplays themselves, but he did create the characters. And The Crow was originally created as sort of a therapy for him. His girlfriend was killed in what I believe was a drunk driving accident, but I may be wrong about that. It's my understanding that she was a sober driver who was hit by a drunk driver. And creating this was a way he had to deal with it, which he later regretted because he said that although it helped in the first few months, it also meant, because it was so popular, that it was difficult for him to just walk away and leave the crow behind. So he was kind of trapped, mired in those emotions and in this world for several years longer than he felt was really healthy. Now, there are two other screenwriters attached. I suspect that they were brought in independently. One of them is David J. Shaw. Prior to The Crow, he worked on an episode of Freddy's Nightmares, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, and Critters 3 and 4. 
He followed this with a couple episodes of The Outer Limits, some of The Hunger, one of Perversions of Science, as well as Texas Chainsaw Massacre the Beginning, Masters of Horror. So there's a lot of horror in his background. The other credited screenwriter is John Shirley. Now his background includes Defenders of the Earth, an episode of The Real Ghostbusters, seven episodes of Brave Star, three episodes of the Robocop TV series prior to The Crow. He followed this with The Specialist, although it seems like he wrote the novels that the movie was based on, an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, an episode of The Red Shoe Diaries, Poltergeist, Adventures of Sinbad, VR5, Prophet, Spawn, Batman Beyond, the newest Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So he has a pretty respectable resume as well, but there's no overlap between the two writers. Now, what is common in Hollywood when you're dealing with adapted material is to have two, if not three, screenwriters on the project. So one of them is asked to do a faithful adaptation of the source material, while a second writer works independently being told, here's the basic premise, write what that means to you. And for that role, they prefer to have someone who is completely unfamiliar with the source material, and they don't want them touching the source material. Then they often have a third writer whose job it is to bring the two of them together. So the third writer takes the two drafts and tries to combine the elements of both into some other combination that Hollywood has frequently found to be the most successful way to adapt product to screen. It means that they're less faithful to the letter with the source material, but sometimes great novels don't make great movies, or same with comics. I personally think comics fare a little bit better because they have that visual nature to them, but there's others. Look at Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which was adapted into Blade Runner. That movie and novel have very little in common plot-wise. There's just thematic representations, and I think that's a good thing. Blade Runner is a great movie, and Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is a great novel that does not translate well to the screen. There's just too much of the running time would just have Deckard holding a couple handles on this device and thinking. So anyway, I don't know exactly how the division of work went between David J. Shaw and John Shirley, but it doesn't look like either one of them had a lot of history with it or with each other. So I suspect it's a case where Hollywood was looking for someone who knew the source material. My guess that would be David J. Shaw, given the sheer amount of horror in his background. Someone who was less familiar, but was a proven working man in the industry and had them kind of work together. Other notable members of the production crew include Graham Revel. He's a composer who also did Daredevil, Riddick, Sin City, Pitch Black, Pineapple Express, and From Dusk Till Dawn, as well as episodes of a number of TV series, including the three-part Dune miniseries, The Eleventh Hour, a number of episodes of CSI Miami, Street Fighter, The Craft. So looking at his IMDb credits, he's had a lot of work, 107 composer credits but not a lot that really jump out at me. Although he has won a number of BMI Film and Music Awards for The Crow, The Saint, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, Daredevil, CSI Miami, Freddy vs. Jason, and so forth. Although none of his nominations have come from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the Golden Globes, or any of the really high-profile awards. Now, cinematographer Darius Wolski is worth a mention because, as I said, this film is visually stunning. That's a big part of the success, I think, is it does have a very clear visual style, and one that was mimicked later in the decade quite frequently. He was also cinematographer on Chains of Gold, Romeo Was Bleeding, Crimson Tide, Dark City, A Perfect Murder, The Mexican, The Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Sweeney Todd, Exodus, Gods and Kings, The Martian, and a number of others. He's got 38 credits. He definitely knows what he's doing and actually did a very good job here. 
Getting into the cast, the most notable member of the cast is Brandon Lee. He's the son of Bruce Lee. He plays Eric Draven, aka The Crow, in this. He had 10 acting credits to his name. This was the last to be released because he was actually killed as a result of an accident on set. As many people know, when guns are shot on film, they're almost invariably firing blanks. What people tend to forget is that the blank still has the shell casing, and there's still parts of a bullet, just not the main projectile. And in rare circumstances, if it's not handled completely correctly, then that bullet shell can still be dangerous. In this case, when the prop guys were firing blanks at him, a little too close with just some extreme bad luck, and as a result, he died an accidental death. Now, Rochelle Davis played Sarah. She's got a grand total of three credits on the IMDb, including Random Detective in Hell House from 2009 and Alara in Grotesque from 2016. None of those even have movie posters or other images on the IMDb. So this is easily her most notable work. Speaking of notables, I think the most notable member of the cast is actually Ernie Hudson, who plays the police officer that works with Eric Draven. He's probably best known as Winston Zedmore from Ghostbusters, although he was also Warden Leo Glynn in Oz. He was in Miss Congeniality. This is a guy with 225 acting credits to his name. But frankly, if you don't know him as Winston Zedmore, then you probably don't know him. That's just one of those cultural touch pieces that most people are familiar with. Now, the primary villain was played by Michael Wincott, who was also in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Alien Resurrection, and Dead Man. Although of his 64 credits, this is quite possibly the most notable in terms of the size of the role rather than the size of the project, which I can see because, frankly, I found him a little bit stilted in here and not nearly as menacing as Top Dollar as he was intended to be. Now, his love interest was Bei Ling, who was also known for Anna and the King, Three Extremes, and Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. She does have 97 credits to her name, including an uncredited role in Star Wars Episode Three as Senator Bonabrimu. Now, some of those credits are not going to be that familiar to North American audiences just because they are not North American productions. This was filmed pretty early in her move to North America. But she also appeared in Shayla and Soccer, Touched by an Angel, The Monkey King, and a number of other notable films, including Crank High Voltage. Others on the cast include Sophia Shines, who's also in Terminal Velocity, Hostile Intent, Dilemma, and a few other films, but nothing terribly notable. We've got Anna Levine, who was also in Unforgiven, True Romance, Bad Boys, and quite a few other movies. She's got over 50 credits to her name. David Patrick Kelly plays T-Bird. He's also been in The Blacklist, Gossip Girl, he's in the new Twin Peaks, and was in Last Man Standing. Angel David played Skank. He was also in Salt, G.I. Jane, Two Guys and a Girl, and so forth. Lawrence Mason was Nikon from Hackers. He's also in The Lincoln Lawyer, AI, Artificial Intelligence, and has small parts in a number of other roles. Michael Massey is Funboy, but he's probably better known for playing Andy in Lost Highway. He was in Seven, and he was the gentleman from the Amazing Spider-Man films. Now, the last two notable guest stars include Tony Todd, who is Candyman from The Candyman, as well as Warren in Platoon, Captain Darrow in The Rock, and The Man from Earth. He's actually the first one who's got four known for titles on the IMDb that do not include The Crow. And finally, John Polito is also notable. He also does not have The Crow listed in his top four. He's got Miller's Crossing, 
The Man Who Wasn't There, The Big Lebowski, and Barton Fink, amongst his 219 credits to his name. He played a pawnbroker in The Crow. He's also done a lot of voice acting in the last few years. Now, some of the visual style here was even less stylized than Proyas wanted. He actually wanted to do most of the film in black and white to match the comics and only have the flashbacks in color. The studio wouldn't let him go completely for that, so he just really damped the colors down and went very monochromatic. Now, there was also a lot of flexibility given to the actors. For example, there's a scene between Brandon Lee and Ernie Hudson in Albrecht's apartment. Much of that is ad-libbed. There's also some that was very restricted. Because Brandon Lee died during production, he hadn't finished filming all of his scenes. So they had someone of a similar physique come in as a body double and digitally superimposed Brandon Lee's face on his body. So how did this fare at the box office? The estimated budget is $23 million, and that includes adding to the budget to digitally keep Brandon Lee in the film after his death. The domestic gross was almost $51 million. So with our rule of thumb that it takes two to three times a movie's budget before it starts to be profitable, this is just getting into that range. The worldwide gross totaled $94 million. So this was a profitable film, which also explains why it managed to spawn three sequels. So in any event, this is interesting as an early look at director Alex Proyas and how he's done. He is a respected director in the industry. If you see it, don't see it as a superhero film. This is just straight-up vengeance. It's more film noir mafia kind of thing with supernatural elements. So if you go in expecting that, you should be pleased. Also, while Brandon Lee clearly has some martial arts backgrounds with some of the moves that he is using, he is not the martial artist his father was. So don't expect a Bruce Lee-style martial arts fest. That's not where he was going with this. In any event, that's about all we have to say for The Crow. So join us again in a month's time when we do the next episode of Make Me Watch It. And again, the title that will be selected by user votes will be announced one week prior on the same audio feed you get this from. Now, please remember, voting takes place at Bureau42.com. Go to the right-hand bar and scroll down for the Make Me Watch It voting. There's a number of votes that can be done by decade. The first addendum was available before the first episode of the podcast came out. And I do anticipate a second addendum will be up shortly if it's not already. Thank you for listening.